What is going on, Solo fam? My name is John Solo, and I have always loved strong, independent women, specifically women who don't need no man. Iconic characters like Ripley, Princess Leia, Sarah Connor, Captain Marvel. Sorry, I shouldn't joke about that. These women all proved to have warrior spirits on their adventures. They may not have known what they were capable of at the very start, but when push came to shove, they stared straight into the face of death and said, Get away from her, you bitch! Now there is no shortage of powerful feminine figures in Greek mythology. There are goddesses, queens, witches, and nymphs whose hijinks prove that women are just as cunning and even more dangerous than men. But when it comes to today's subject, Atalanta, there is no equal regardless of gender. Abandoned at birth and raised by bears, she was a mighty huntress who sailed with the Argonauts and hunted down the rampaging Caledonian boar. When she was eventually forced to marry, she created a dangerous and humiliating contest for her suitors to win her hand causing many of them to lose their heads. But that is just the tip of the iceberg, my friends. With the help of our resident historian, Meredith Walker, we're covering the complete mythology of Atalanta, the huntress from Arcadia. Chapter one, equal in weight, Atalanta's early life. Just like with every other subject we've covered on this show, there is more than one version of Atalanta's story. But the good news is the only significant differences between them are the identities of her parents and the locations of certain events. For example, if you grew up in the region of Arcadia, you would have been told that Atalanta's father was named Iasus. But if your best friend was raised in the Boeotian region, they would insist that her father was named Shonus. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because the most notable thing that either of them did was sire Atalanta. And I would argue they don't even deserve credit for that because when she was born a girl instead of a boy like they wanted, both fathers abandoned the newborn in the wilderness to die. And they almost got their wish. Atalanta wasn't alone for long before she was discovered by a she-bear. But instead of devouring the tasty baby like a real bear would, this one was struck by divine inspiration to nurse and care for the child. Now this might have been because her own cubs had just been killed by some hunters and her maternal instincts were still going strong. However, I'm sad to report that Bear experienced loss yet again when those same hunters discovered Atalanta in her cave and stole her away when the bear had left to go search for food. It was at this point that Atalanta received her name, which means equal in weight potentially a reference to her being equal to her male counterparts. Before this, the bear had just called her, but the hunters didn't think that was a good fit. As Atalanta grew up, she was trained by those hunters to, you guessed it, cook and clean, but they also taught her to ride and hunt, and she was a natural at both. By the time she was a teenager, she was completely self-sufficient and desired solitude, so she found a secluded cave well hidden in the Arcadian Mountains and made it her home. The life that she lived over the next several years strongly resembled the deity that she had sworn herself to, Artemis, the goddess of the hunt. Atalanta slept on the skins of the animals she hunted, lived off their meat, and drank fresh water from nearby streams. She also wore a simple tunic, vowed to remain a virgin, and would mercilessly kill anyone who tried to make her break that vow. Now that didn't happen very often because most men didn't even have the courage to look her in the face, but if they did, they would have seen that she was stunning. According to Aelian's historical miscellany, written during the second or third century CE, while still a girl, she was bigger than a full grown woman and more beautiful than any young woman from the Peloponnesos in those days. She had a fiery masculine gaze, partly the result of having been nurtured by an animal, but also because of her exercise in the mountains. 
appearance. But since she was full of spirit, there was nothing girlish or delicate about her. She was not the product of the women's apartments, not one of those brought up by mothers and nurses, nor was her body overweight. Not surprisingly, since she exercised every limb in hunting and physical exercise. Her hair was golden, not due to feminine sophistication, dyes, or applications, but the color was natural. Exposure to the sun had reddened her face and it looked just as if she was blushing. She had two astonishing qualities, unrivaled beauty, and with it, a capacity to inspire fear. Aelian then goes on to mention Atalanta's neighbors, two foolish centaurs who wrongfully assumed they could just waltz into Atalanta's territory and take her back home to marry. They tried to ambush the huntress late in the night while she was sleeping in her cave, but she was alerted by their thunderous stampede through the wilderness and the bizarrely bright torches they were carrying. Barely a moment after the centaurs emerged out of the forest, one of them was already laying on the ground dead with an arrow shot right through his heart. This riled up the surviving centaur, but not for long, because a few seconds later, he was impaled with an arrow and fell over dead. From that point onward, men would think twice before making any unwarranted passes on Atalanta. Rumors about the event had spread, and the would-be Weinsteins realized that if she could take out two centaurs without breaking a sweat, then she could probably kill men even more efficiently. Chapter 2. The Hunt for the Caledonian Boar One of the most famous myths starring Atalanta is the hunt for the Caledonian boar. A guy called King Oneus had pissed off Artemis by not honoring her in his ritual to the gods, so she sent the boar to ravage his lands, and he needed some skilled hunters to slay it. Atalanta was the lone female among these hunters, who initially refused to hunt alongside a woman. If it weren't for the group's leader, Meliager, wanting to have babies with Atalanta, she most likely wouldn't have been allowed to join them. It's a good thing she did though, because these guys may not have pulled it off otherwise. Two of them were gored by the boar, a guy named Peleus accidentally killed one of their own with his javelin. It was a mess. Atalanta was the first to draw blood when she impaled the boar in the back with one of her arrows. Then Amphiaros shot it in the eye, and Meliager finished it off by stabbing it in the flank with his spear. Since Meliager was the one who struck the death blow, he had first dibs on the boar's hide and wanted to give it to Atalanta in the hope that she would suck his in the hope that she would find his respectful nature attractive. Plus, he had genuine admiration for her abilities. But once again, some of the other hunters, specifically his uncles, threw hissy fits. They insisted that the spoils of a hunt should never be given to a woman when a man is present, and even went so far as to rip the hide from her hands. This level of disrespect filled Meliager with rage, and he responded by slaughtering all of his uncles and any others in the party who sided with them. Then, while surrounded by their still warm corpses, he once again bestowed the skin to Atalanta this time for keeps. Chapter 3. The Female Argonaut Atalanta is widely known as the only woman to sail with the Argonauts. For those who need a refresher, the Argonauts were the 50 men who sailed with Jason on his quest to receive the Golden Fleece for King Peleas. The historian Apollodorus lists Atalanta as the only woman among the Argonauts crew members in the Bibliotheca. However, there's nothing notable written about her beyond this list. What makes it even more odd is that Apollonius Rhodius, who wrote The Argonautica, the most complete written work about Jason's voyage, claims that Jason himself would not let Atalanta join the Argonauts. The story goes that she met up with him in Manalus, a town in ancient Arcadia, to give him an expertly crafted spear and request to join the voyage. But he said no, for he feared bitter strife on account of her love. 
I took this to mean that he was afraid that he or one of the Argo's 50 crew members would fall in love with her, but it could just as easily be that Jason was a cocky bastard and worried that Atalanta would catch feelings for him. Either way, she ends up not sailing with the Argonauts in that one version. But for our purposes today, we're gonna go ahead and say that she did because it's more fun that way. You see, after Jason retrieves the Golden Fleece and the Argonauts return, King Pelias, the guy who gave Jason the mission, is chopped up into little pieces and thrown into boiling water by his own daughters. They were fooled by Medea, Jason's sorceress lover, into thinking that would have some kind of fountain of youth effect where he was born again as a young man. Alas, it did not. And at the funeral games of King Pelias, Atalanta wrestled that guy from the boar hunt who accidentally killed his comrade, Pelias, and she kicked his ass. An illustration of this scene has been found on several pieces of pottery, with one vase being dated back to 530 BCE. And if you look at the background, you'll notice the prize of the contest is the skin of the Caledonian boar. Kind of odd considering that at this point in the timeline, Meliager would have already given Atalanta the boar skin for keeps. But I like to think that Atalanta was so confident about defeating Peleus that she put the prize from their last hunt on the line to humiliate him even further. But that won't be the last guy that Atalanta humiliates. Just wait until you hear how she selected her husband. Chapter 4. The Race at the beginning of this episode, I told you that when Atalanta was a young girl, she had pledged to herself that she would stay a virgin forever and dedicated her life to the goddess Artemis. But there's a little more to it than that. According to Ovid's Metamorphoses, the real reason she swore herself to chastity was because an oracle told her that she was destined to get married and that her husband would lead to her downfall. But here's the thing. Once something has been prophesied, there is no way of stopping it without divine intervention. So Atalanta, knowing that she was basically cursed to get married eventually, came up with some pretty harsh terms to make sure that whoever would bring this misfortune upon her would at least be worthy. What kind of terms, you ask? She organized a foot race for all of her potential suitors. Whoever won would receive her hand in marriage. Whoever lost would have his head cut off and mounted on the wall of the stadium. You want to go ahead and take a guess which category 99.9% .9 of her suitors fell under? In my favorite version of the myth, she set up the race after being reunited with her parents and her father insisted she find a husband. Yeah, the guy who tried to end her life by abandoning her in the woods is now trying to have control over it. But that's where the race comes in. Atalanta ceded ground to her father and agreed to get married, but only if one of her admirers could prove himself to be faster than her. She even agreed to give the hopeless dopes a head start. In the very moment she passed them up in the race, she would cut their head off with euphoric fury. These races took place on a regular basis until the arrival of Hippomenes, or Melanian if you're from Arcadia. But it really doesn't matter because both versions play out the same way. Both men were awestruck when they first beheld Atalanta's beauty and prayed to the goddess of love, Aphrodite, for assistance in winning her hand. Aphrodite couldn't help being moved by these prayers and just so happened to have with her three golden apples more beautiful than any mortal had ever seen. So she gave these apples to Hippomenes and told him the perfect strategy for how to use them. Then, when the race started, Hippomenes did as he was instructed. When he felt Atalanta closing in behind him, he dropped one of the apples, and Atalanta was so awestruck by its beauty that she couldn't help but stop and pick it up. It wasn't long before she caught back up to him, though, and he still had at least half the race to go. Fortunately, he also had two apples left and threw another one to distract her. When he hit that final 100-meter stretch, Hippomenes had the wind in his sails and was confident that he'd be taking Atalanta home that night. But somehow, she 
had caught up to him again, and when he could feel her breath on the back of his neck, he threw the third and final apple. By now, their entrancing beauty was starting to lose its luster, so Atalanta almost didn't take the bait. If it weren't for Aphrodite's direct involvement, she may have passed right by it, but instead, she picked it up, and with the added weight of three golden apples in her hands and the time she sacrificed to grab each one, she didn't have enough time left to catch Epomenes before he crossed the finish line. That moment was undoubtedly the most glorious of Epomenes' life, but I'm sad to say this happiness wouldn't last for long. Chapter 5. Married with Children on the day that Hippomenes won the right to Atalanta's hand in marriage, the newlyweds went to a temple of Zeus or Zeus's mother Rhea, depending on the version, and made a grateful sacrifice to him. But remember, it wasn't Zeus or Rhea who helped Hippomenes, it was Aphrodite. So to punish him for not thanking her, she cast a spell of lust on the couple causing them to get crazy horny and consummate their marriage right there in the temple. Sure, that doesn't sound too bad at first, but when Zeus saw this, he became enraged at the disrespect, and to punish the young couple, he turned them both into lions, an animal that Hyginus claims is denied intercourse by the gods. But obviously that's not true, unlike everything else in this myth, which is provable fact. It's science. Now, in the minds of some poets, this is where Atalanta's story ends, with she and Hippomenes, or Melanian, cursed to spend the rest of their lives as sexless lions. However, there are several other works that claim she and Melanian, or Ares apparently, had a son named Parthenopaeus, implying that she eventually became human again, though it's never explained how that happened. I honestly think Parthenopaeus is an interesting enough character that he deserves a video of his own, but there are two notable things from his life that you're gonna wanna hear. First, there's a myth where Atalanta did the unthinkable after he was born. She abandoned him on a mountain like her father abandoned her. See, in this timeline, the baby was Meliagers, meaning he was conceived right after the boar hunt and before Atalanta was married, so she still had her virgin reputation to uphold. Second fun fact, in the timeline where Atalanta doesn't abandon her son, I know, this shit is more confusing than Star Wars canon, he joins the military to fight in the war against Thebes, and she chases him down to convince him to come home. How does she try and convince him? By roasting him in front of his whole battalion. She says he's not ready for war and reminds him of their last hunting trip where he would have been killed by a boar if she hadn't shot it with her bow and arrow. Unfortunately, Atalanta didn't realize that publicly humiliating someone isn't a great way for them to see your perspective. So Parthenopaeus stayed with his men and continued marching toward Thebes. But that's a story for another day. As for Atalanta, that's just about as thorough as a breakdown can get without literally reading from the ancient text and scholarly interpretations word for word. So now I wanna know, what do you think? Which of Atalanta's many accomplishments did you find the most entertaining? And would you have risked your life in a race against her for a billion dollars? Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo and don't forget, John shot first. <laughs>